The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I and said, yes, snow. How many of you that, how many of you looked outside, saw snow and thought, oh no, snow. How many of you, okay. A lot of in-betweens there. Last winter, after the first major snowfall of the year, I was watching the news, and the, uh, the newscaster was out and interviewing people about the snow, which I think is funny. What do you think of the snow? It's snowing. It, anyways, they're out there. They're interviewing people, asking them what they think about the snow. And the first few responses are the very typical responses that you always hear, kind of this, oh, now I got to shovel my driveway. Roads are going to be very sloppy. And then they got to their final um, interview. And this woman that they interviewed was probably around 70 years of age, seemed pretty fit. And they asked her, what do you think about the snow? And her face lit up. She goes, I love the snow. I am so thankful for the snow. I lived in Florida for 10 years and I missed the snow. I'm so glad that it's snowing. And the final shot was of this 70 or so year old woman laying in her front yard doing snow angels. And they cut to the newscasters and they kind of laughed but didn't quite know what to do with that. And it made such an impression on me because I thought, how often am I so much like the earlier people they interviewed than I am like this woman? I mean, there's no reason why I can't be happy that it's snowing. But so often I look at things and I'm not happy. You know, this time of year, we wish each other happy new year, right? We wish on one another that our year will be happy. But the question is, how do we be happy in the new year? Most of us would think that happiness comes from favorable circumstances, right? Like our relationships go well, our job goes well, our health goes well. And when those things happen, then we are happy. And so many times when we're wishing people a happy new year, we're happy, we're, we're wishing them that all their circumstances in their life would go well this year. But what I discovered this week, and maybe I knew intellectually, but was reminded in my heart, is that if we want to be happy, if we want a happy 2016 It does not depend on the greatness of your situation. It depends on the thankfulness of your heart. It's been said this way. It is not happy people who are thankful. It is thankful people who are happy. I don't know about you, but I mix that up all the time. I always think, you know, I'll be thankful when I'm happy, when all my situations go right. Then I will be a thankful person when I'm happy. But what scripture shows us is that happy people are happy because before that they have cultivated a heart of thankfulness. Now, just to be very clear, when I say the word happy, I don't mean this temporary Uh, giddiness that happens. I mean, obviously, by what Chad announced earlier, there are appropriate times for grief and for mourning. But the happiness I'm talking about is an internal heart joy that cannot be extinguished by the things of this world. And so today, we want to look to the great theologian Hannah and have her remind us what we have to be thankful for. 
why we can cultivate a heart of gratitude that will change our attitude and give us a happy heart and a happy new year. And so if you would please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's page 266 in the Red Bible and page 299 in the Children's Bible. (coughs) Today's passage starts by telling us that Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. This prayer that is written down is not only a prayer, but it is also a song, a song of jubilant celebration. It's not just merely an intellectual exercise in which she's writing down the things that she's supposed to be. This is an overflow of her heart, gratitude to God, thankful to God, and happy in God. Now, we might look at Hannah's situation, and we may say, of course Hannah is happy. She just had a baby boy that she has been waiting for for a very long time. But let me remind you that Hannah is writing this song on the heels of giving over her infant child, the one that she's been waiting for, the one that she loves, the one that she adores, giving over her only son to the temple for the rest of his life. Now she will see him from time to time, but she will not hear the pitter-patter of his feet in the morning. She won't experience that daily hug and kiss and tickle fight. She won't have any of those things. And so there is much reason for Hannah to not be happy, for Hannah not to be thankful. But what we find in this song of Hannah is that there is one reason for happiness, one reason for joy, one reason for gratitude that trumps all the reasons not to be. And so let's look together at Hannah's song and see what we have to be thankful for in the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Lord, as we dive into your text 
I just confess, I'm not a very thankful person. Three times a day, I sit down, breakfast, lunch, and dinner to give thanks, and so many times it's just lip service to get to what I really want. Lord, forgive us for our ingratitude and remind us today of what we have to be thankful for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Both Christians and non-Christians alike have recognized that a heart of gratitude and thankfulness is of unquantifiable value. There's actually statistics out there that show a link between a thankful heart and happiness in life. But we see this is common knowledge to both Christians and non-Christians. The great theologian G.K. Chesterton says, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. The great theologian Willie Nelson said it this way, When I started counting my blessings, giving thanks, my whole life turned around. Finally, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor that was persecuted and killed by the Nazis, said, In ordinary life, we hardly realize that we receive a great deal more than we give, and that it is only with gratitude that life becomes rich. You know, all people have reason to give thanks because of God's common grace. God has given us very good things. He's given us the sun, the rain, the snow. He's given us relationships and love, and he's given us emotions and expressions, and he's given us good food, and he's given us all of these things that we can give thanks to God for. And so all people have a reason to give thanks to God, but Christians above all else, have the greatest reason to give thanks to God. And it's because of who God is and what he has done for us. And so the question I want to ask today is this. What is it about the Lord that should make our hearts overflow with thanksgiving and praise in 2016? And there are three things we'll see. That we should rejoice and give thanks because the Lord is mighty, because he is mindful, And because he is merciful. And so let's look at those three things. First, from the depths of our heart, we must give thanks and rejoice that the Lord is mighty. Look at verse one with me. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, this term horn is not a synonym that I'm guessing you probably use very often, nor do I. But think of what horns are used for on animals. Horns are the means by which an animal defends himself against their enemy, against their predators, against any who would want to make war against them. And so here, Hannah is praising God that her strength is not in herself, not in her knowledge, not in her might, but in the might of God. And horns that are lowered are lowered in submission and defeat, and horns, horns raised are, are raised in victory. Psalm 75.10 says, All the horns, this is the Lord speaking, all the horns, the horns of the wicked I will cut off, which means they will become defenseless. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. And so Hannah is rejoicing that her strength is in the Lord. She continues and says, My mouth derides my enemies 
because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, the enemies that Hannah is talking about here is probably not Penina, her husband's other wife who, who mocked her, because it's plural, it's enemies. And matter of fact, there's nothing really in this song, if you notice, about Penina or even about Samuel, which is very interesting. But she is talking about the enemies of God's people. Her enemies are the same as the enemies of God's people. And so if you remember in the book of Judges, the people of God were conquered various times and they were enslaved time and time again by people like the Mesopotamians, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Ammonites, and the Philistines. And as these people were conquered, as the people of God were conquered and were enslaved time and again, the people of God cried out. And the Lord time and again came and rescued them. And so that is why she says, I rejoice in your salvation. Not I rejoice in my salvation, but I rejoice in your salvation, Lord, because salvation is from the Lord. The Lord is the author of salvation, the beginner of salvation, the accomplisher of salvation, the sustainer of salvation, and the finisher of salvation. And so she says, I rejoice in the Lord, and I rejoice in his salvation. Now, Hannah's worship and her giving thanks to the Lord for his salvation has an interesting side benefit. If you look there, it says that her mouth derides her enemies. And the King James, it says, my mouth is enlarged over my enemies. Hannah mocks them, not by making fun of her enemies, but simply by rejoicing in the Lord. I don't know if you've ever seen the final pitch of a World Series game, but one of the most interesting things I find is that when the final pitch is done and the celebration begins, many of the people from the losing team sit in their dugout and they they watch the celebration. And I think, why would they do that? It seems like that would be so painful. Not because the, the winning team is coming over and taunting them, but because they're watching someone else celebrate, meaning that they have lost. Our enemies are not political in nature, nor are they athletic in nature. Our enemies are Satan, sin, and death. And these are enemies that we cannot defeat on our own strength, but by the might of God. And when we sing of the Lord's salvation, when we thank God for his salvation, when we give praise to him, for his salvation. We are not only worshiping the Lord, but we are actually taunting our enemies. We are taunting Satan. We are taunting sin. And we are taunting death. Because when we rejoice in our salvation, we not only proclaim that the Lord has won, but they have lost. And so when we worship, when we sing, when we celebrate, when we pray, when we praise, we are proclaiming that Satan cannot steal our salvation, that sin cannot jeopardize our salvation, and that death cannot end our salvation. And so Hannah, in praise, worshiping the Lord for his might, also taunts her enemies. Verse 2 continues, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. This word holy means set apart or distinct. And Hannah says one thing that makes the, the, the Lord holy is that there is none beside you. 
She's not saying there is none like you, which is also true, but that there is none beside you. What she is declaring is something that is very offensive to our postmodern ears. She is declaring a monotheistic worldview, which means that there is only one true God and that all other gods are false gods. Hannah's not saying, hey, whatever God works for you is good for you. and Whatever God works for me is good for me. She's saying there is none besides the Lord. He is the only true God and that all other gods are mightless, are powerless, are impotent. All other gods were created by man, but the Lord God was the one who created all men. You might know, well, it goes on, and in verse 2 it says, There is no rock like our God, which speaks of God's firmness, God's certainty, God's surety, God's dependability. Many of you are probably familiar with the song, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. People may be building their salvation based on a different worldview, a different philosophy, a different religion, which all of them funnel back into building a salvation based on their own good works, which we have talked about many times is not Christianity. But I want to target you. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and you trust in Christ for your salvation, but you base the certainty of your salvation on yourself and not on Christ. Maybe you base it on the amount of your thankfulness. Maybe you base it on your joy or your emotion. I think I've shared this story before, but when I was in young life, I went to this new, uh, new staff workers training and I remember there was this older gentleman who stood up, probably now my age, and he was talking about um, worship. And one of the things he told us is he said that, that, um, that, his, that our generation has a lot to teach his generation about passion in worship. He said, but my generation has a lot to teach your generation about truth. Because when emotion wears off, truth stands. You know, when you don't feel thankful for your salvation, when you don't feel excited about your salvation, when you don't feel passionate about your salvation, the rock still stands. Emotions may be evidence of salvation, but it is not the foundation of our salvation. Praise God. The song goes on, when darkness seems to hide his face, you can't see him. He seems so far away. I rest on his unchanging grace. He is our rock. When all around my soul gives way, I doubt, I question, I don't know. I'm depressed. I'm sad. I'm unthankful. He then is all my hope and stay. You know, emotion is a good thing and a wonderful thing and a beautiful thing, but it's also a very fickle thing, isn't it? Here today, gone tomorrow. Here this second, gone the next second. The rock and foundation of our salvation is not our love for Jesus. The rock and foundation of our salvation is Jesus and his unchanging love for us, regardless of how fickle our emotions are. And so if you trust in Christ, 
In this life, you may grow in the assurance of your salvation, but you can never grow more secure in your salvation. In heaven, you may grow happier in your salvation, but you will not be more secure in your salvation because your salvation is not up to you, but it's up to the rock, Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf to bring us into relationship with God and to triumph all over all of our enemies. And so we come giving thanks to God and praising God because of his might who saved us and who keeps us. We also have much to give thanks for because our Lord is mindful. Look at verse three with me. He says, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. One of the attributes of the Lord that Hannah is celebrating is that God is omniscient. This means that he is all-knowing. In this verse, she says he knows all of our actions, but he not only knows our action, he also knows our hearts. He knows if we are arrogant. He knows if we are prideful. And so she celebrates that God knows all things, but she also celebrates that God is just. She says that God will weigh our actions. Now, in most parts of Scripture where you see God's justice and God's all-knowingness combined. It is a dreadful and fearful thing because if God knows not only all of our actions that we do in public and in private, but he also knows all the motivations of our heart, and yet at the same time is just, we're in a whole lot of trouble. But here for Hannah is actually a point of celebration and of comfort that God is both unknowing and he is just because it means that God is mindful of the marginalized. It means that God is going to right every wrong in this world. Verses four through nine kind of play out verse three, and it gives illustrations of verse three. We read both of how God opposes the proud by breaking their bows and removing their food and taking their life, taking away their riches, cutting them off into darkness. But we also see how God gives grace to the humble, strengthening the feeble, feeding the hungry, giving children to the childless, giving life to the dead, exalting the lowly, and giving riches to the poor. Hannah praises God for what we are told so succinctly in James chapter 4, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hannah praises the Lord because she knows that man is not ultimately in charge, that man does not get the last say, but that the Lord delights to bless the humble, the marginalized, the forgotten, and bring justice against the proud. We see this played out in 1 Samuel. Next week, Chad's going to preach about Eli's two sons who are arrogant and proud and horrible. And God will bring his justice upon them, putting them both to death on the same day. But God will raise up a humble servant named Samuel to take their place. We'll also see it in King Saul and King David as we unfold the story. But what we see is that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble because he is mindful of them in their condition. Last Christmas, Trish and I received an Advent basket. An Advent basket is a basket where there's these Uh, 12 gifts, and you open up these gifts one day at a time, and then at the end, you find out who who gave you the gift. Well, we were so 
uh, humbled by the fact that someone would actually think of us in this way and be mindful of us. But what blew us away were a lot of the gifts were very tailor-made to who we are. For example, just one example, we got this little spatula that you use for like getting brownies out of a pan, you know, those little spatulas, which are really helpful when you need one. And someone must have known that ours was broken to pieces and we'd super glued it about a million times. And it wasn't that we didn't have the resources to purchase these things, but someone was mindful enough to go out to purchase these things, to think of these things, to wrap these things, and to give these things to us. You know, the Lord loves to give good gifts to his people. The Lord knows the needs of his people. He knows our suffering. He knows our pain. He knows the injustice that is done against us. And here we have this great promise that God is going to right every wrong, that God is mindful of us, that we are not off his radar, that he has not forgotten about us, but that he is taking care of us and he will take care of us for all eternity because God is mindful of us. And so we have reason for great thanksgiving and great rejoicing because God is mighty for us, because God is mindful of us, and finally, because the Lord is merciful to us. Again, remember the chart we put up last week, the state of Israel. I'll put it up again, the book of Judges. This is kind of where Israel was at when Samuel came into being, when he was born. The book of Judges repeats this cycle several times. Israel serves the Lord. Israel forgets God. Israel does evil. Israel serves other gods. They're committing adultery on their God who had saved them and rescued them. Israel is enslaved. They cry out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. Israel is delivered. Israel serves the Lord. And then the cycle repeats again and again and again and again. About 13 times this cycle repeats amongst the people of Israel. God rescues them. He delivers them. They're thankful. They praise him, but then they forget him and they worship other gods and they're enslaved. And then they cry out and all happens again and again and again. And so let me ask you, what would you do with Israel if you were God? Better yet, if if you were in Israel at that time, what would you think God would do to you? You know, Hannah is a woman of tremendous faith because she is banking on the fact that God will be true to his promises, because God has promised to never leave them or forsake them, that God has promised to pour out mercy upon them. And that's what she is going towards the Lord with, praising him for his mercy. In verse 10, she says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Again, she's looking in the future and trusting that God will continue to defend them by his mercy, not because of their goodness, not because of their faithfulness, but because of his love and grace and mercy towards them. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And then she says this very interesting phrase. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah's hope is in this king, but what's so interesting is that Israel has not yet had a king. There's a provision made in Deuteronomy 17 as they're coming out of the promised land. The Lord says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And so 
Hannah's desire for a king was a good thing. But what was bad is that so much of Israel wanted a king of their choosing and not of God's choosing. And so the very first king was a king of their choosing, someone tall and handsome, but did not love God. But the second king, David, was the last that someone would have picked. And it was a man after God's own heart. Hannah's hope and Israel's hope was that God would display his mercy through a king that would end this vicious cycle of judges, that would lead them in righteousness and in worship of the Lord. What Hannah didn't know is that her son Samuel, who she gave over, would be the one to anoint the first king and would be the one to anoint the second king that would usher the people of Israel into the kingship from judges. But what else she may or may not have known is that these kings pointed to a future king, a greater king, the king of kings from the line of David. You see, the word anointed here is the word which we get the word Christ from. And so it looks forward to that great king of kings, the Christ. God's ultimate display of mercy was not in sending a temporary king, but a permanent king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king of kings that by his might will become a baby in triumph over Satan, sin, and death. Jesus is the king of kings that by his mindfulness would come down from heaven to save a people that has rebelled against him for generations. Jesus is the king of kings who by his mercy would accomplish salvation, not for those who deserve it, but for all who trust in him. And so let me ask you this question. Are you tired of sin? Do you look at that chart and you say, that's me. I just go through the cycle time and time again. And you ask this question, when is it going to be enough? When is God going to give up on me? The good news that Hannah understands is that you cannot out God's mercy. You can't out God's mercy. The book of Lamentations, which is a book of great sorrows, has this great glimmering hope in it. In Lamentations 3, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. This is the good news of the gospel, that God's mercy never ends for those who trust in Christ. And so are you here today trusting in Christ as your King of Kings, as the Messiah, as the glorious one? Or are you trusting in yourself, in your own pride, in your own arrogance, looking to your own good works to please God? Or have you come to God in humility and say, I cannot do it on my own. Anytime I try to take over this life, it goes horribly wrong. I throw myself at your feet for your mercy and for your grace because God loves to give grace to the humble. You see, we have more to be thankful for than Hannah than because we have seen the coming of the King of Kings. And we know the King of Kings personally, intimately, and his mercies are new every morning. Let me end with this. When I was a kid, about 14 years old, a new song came on the radio. And I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit what it was, but um, it was a simple song. And it was called Yesterday, and it was by Boys to Men. Yeah, I listened to Boys to Men. And, you know, when you get excited about a song and you, you tell your friends about, hey, did you hear this song yesterday? 
like, have you heard this song? Because it's not played much on the radio, but it's really good. You should go listen to it. And so after I told people for a little while, finally one person said, you know, they didn't write that song. I'm like, what? They didn't write the song? No, in fact, the song was written by John McCartney in 1965. Some of you probably knew that. But what else is interesting is that the Guinness Book of World Records records that the song Yesterday was the most recorded version of any song in history. In fact, over 3,600 artists have recorded the song Yesterday. And they've recorded it over and over again because it's a great song. This is what happens to Hannah's song of praise and thanksgiving. Hannah's song served as a substance of praise for the saints for thousands of years, but it also served as a substance for a song that would come from the mother of our Savior. It was the substance of the first Christmas song, the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who gave birth to the King of Kings. It's the substance of the song that we often call the Magnificat. And it carries the same themes of Hannah's song. In fact, I preached on on the Magnificat two years ago. And the outline for that sermon was, Christmas means God is mindful. Does that sound familiar? Christmas means that God is mighty. Does that sound familiar? Christmas means God is merciful. You see, we have this great God who is mighty and merciful and mindful that we get to praise throughout all eternity because he is a great and glorious God. And so Mary sings to the Lord, and we will get to sing to the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked to the humble estate of his servant. Do you want a happy new year? Do you want a joy-saturated 2016? It is time to give thanks to cultivate a heart of giving thanks. For all the, the, the general blessings of God, the common grace of God, our children, our family, absolutely. But also for that specific saving grace that God has given to us, that through his son, Jesus Christ, he has proved that he is mighty over our enemies, that he is mindful of our condition, and that he has extended mercy that we might be in relationship with him for all eternity. And so make this a New Year's resolution that you will give thanks to the Lord, that you will remember all of the blessings, that you might be happy in Jesus in 2016. Let's pray. Lord God, we do have so much to give thanks for. And in the busyness of life, we forget these things, both small things and big things. God, pray that you would cultivate in our heart thanksgiving. May we be a people of great gratitude, celebrating the simple things like the snow, but also the glorious things like sending your own son to die for us. Lord, we pray, we pray that we would become happy in Jesus because we are reminded of the goodness of your grace and we are thankful for it. Help us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.